This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Julia Phillips, author of the novel Disappearing Earth. One of the big arguments of the book is that through connecting to each other, we can be saved and help save each other. We can can help each other heal. We'll be back with Julia Phillips in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Julia Phillips, author of the novel Disappearing Earth. Julia Phillips has also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Paris Review. She lives in Brooklyn. Disappearing Earth is based in Kimchaka, Russia, and tells the story of two sisters, ages 8 and 11, who go missing. Each chapter reflects one month of the year since the girls' disappearance, and revolves around figures who were intimate or tangential to the mystery, but are all in some way connected by the crime. Characters include the wife of a police investigator, the family of an indigenous girl who also went missing, and the girl's mother, among others. Disappearing Earth brings up issues of class and ethnicity, as the native Russians clearly have more status and power than the indigenous community. We began the discussion with Julia Phillips sharing a story about how she was first drawn to the Russian language and culture. I loved 
Russian and was really interested in Russian as a teenager and as a preteen for a very silly reason. I had a crush on a Russian-American camp counselor when I was 12 years old at summer camp. And after that, I you know, really quickly lost touch with this person. But after that, I just became interested in Russian language and Russian history. I think I was at a very um, influential age and looking for different influences and, and found one there. So there was this, this little silly interaction that started this big academic interest for me. Have you ever thought about trying to find this guy? <laughs> I've thought about how much I wish that I, uh, that, that, anecdote doesn't get back to him because I think it's pretty embarrassing. I think it'd be pretty embarrassing for him too. So once you began studying Russia, then you went to get a Fulbright. And what was that like? What were you studying um, when you were there? And what was it like to finally sort of be in a place that in some level was maybe the Mecca? Yeah. I So I studied Russian in college uh, and I went to Moscow to study abroad during school and getting to be in Russia for the first time after years of, of studying the language and reading the literature and learning the history was, that felt um, extraordinary. I remember very clearly going to Red Square for the first time and crying. I was like so moved and excited and overwhelmed to finally be in the place that I had dreamed of being. And so after I got back to the U.S., so much of my motivation for applying for the Fulbright was trying to find a way to, to get back to Russia and get back to Russia for longer and um, live there and begin my career there, you know, be, begin uh, a writing career there. So I applied for a creative writing Fulbright that would let me research a work of fiction there. And I applied for to live and write about Kamchatka, which was this region where I had never been, but had researched heavily and was really a, a dream of mine to go. I ended up applying twice, two years in a row, and I was waitlisted each time and then taken off the waitlist the second time. Um, and I remember after the first, the Fulbright application is not, uh, it's just quite time intensive. It's not like the most... Uh, demanding application ever by any means, but it, it, they, you have to go through several rounds with it. And then you, from submission to hearing back, it's about nine months. So I remember after the first time, my first application, I thought, you know, I, like, am I going to do this again? Am I going to do this over again? And for 30 seconds, I thought, well, maybe I'm not. And then I looked again at this grant that will pay you to live abroad and give you all this visa support and, and be so life-changing. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to apply for this every year, single year for the rest of my life until I get, I mean, this is just like the most incredible opportunity I can imagine. And, and I was so glad when the second year I got it and I moved to Kamchatka and I felt that same way I'd felt in Moscow all over again, even more, I would say just I was so moved to get to be in this place I had dreamed about. That is the setting of the book. It's it's almost, in a way, the most important character is Kimchaka. Can you describe what it's like there? Yeah, it's really, I think, one of the most special and uh, beautiful and interesting places in the world. Um, 
it's a peninsula on Russia's eastern coast. So if you picture the tail of Alaska swinging out into you know, the Aleutian Islands, into that island chain, those islands then swing into Kamchatka, the region. So it's, it's on the Bering Strait, it's on the Pacific Ocean, and it's about the size of California. But only about 400,000 people live there. And one of the reasons it is so enormous but has a relatively um, small population is because it's geographically isolated. It has uh, mountain passes that separate it from the mainland. So it's a peninsula that's effectively an island. And it's also been politically and culturally isolated for at least the past century. During the Soviet Union, it was a closed military zone and no, really no outsiders were permitted to go there. Only Russians or Soviet citizens who were posted there by the government were permitted to go. So you couldn't visit or you couldn't come as a foreigner. Or you couldn't just drop by Kamchatka. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, those restrictions were dropped. But still, it, it doesn't have roads or train tracks that connect it to the mainland. It's only accessible by air or by sea. It has very little infrastructure, and um, it's quite stunningly beautiful. It's a volcanic peninsula that's full of you know, seismic activity and, and volcanoes and mountains and hot springs and geysers. It's a very, very special place that looms large in memories of the Cold War, looms really large for, for fly fishers, for folks who are into adventure tourism or ecotourism. It has this special place in, in people's minds. And how do you think the people who live there feel about it? You know, it's sometimes you can romanticize a place and then you go there and they're like, all they want to do is get out. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who do want to get out there. My perception is that folks who live on Kamchatka, um, that the satisfaction is a little higher there than it is um, in some neighboring regions of the Russian Far East, like in Chukotka or in you know, Magadan. Like Kamchatka is really very gorgeous and connected with that gorgeousness, has a lot of activities you can do, um, which is a funny thing to say, but like a lot of the young people I met on Kamchatka are snowboarders and skiers and um, surfers and uh, really take full advantage of this extraordinary landscape in which they live. And I think that's an opportunity that if you're in, for example, mainland Siberia is, is not often available to you. So Kamchatka has really like a wealth of resources that people enjoy. That being said, so much of the resources and natural wonder of Kamchatka is mined or logged or drilled and exploited and taken to Moscow. A lot of the wealth of Kamchatka, like the wealth of so many of the provinces, especially farther provinces of Russia, are siphoned away to Moscow and to Western Russia, where the seats of power are in that country. And I think a lot of people who live in Kamchatka are, um, are tired of that, are tired of living in a place that is so beautiful, but that has no roads or that has no very little infrastructure or where 
you know, the water is shut off for a month every summer or uh, where all the money keeps being taken away. And I think a lot of people want to leave and a lot of people do leave. So your story is actually about two young girls who leave in a different way. They disappear. So Aliona and Sophia are sisters and their mother is off at work and they're by a lake and they end up disappearing. And the whole rest of the book is really, it's told the structure is a month of the year that they're disappeared and it really kind of ripples outward to the community and they could be read as individual short stories, but they all link back to this disappearance and how it impacted the people in the story's lives and how some of these people are loosely connected. Can you talk about the structure and kind of what you were thinking about when you started writing this? I mean, you knew you wanted to go write a book there, but did you know the book that you wanted to write and then what was kind of obsessing you that you wanted to get on the page? Yeah, when I went to Kamchatka, I knew I wanted to write a work of fiction that covered as much of the region as possible. I wanted to have as many characters as possible. I wanted to uh, cover as much ground as possible and as much time as possible. I wanted to have quite a wide scope in the in whatever fiction I was working on. But I didn't have any plot in mind. I didn't know what form that would take. And my intention in going there and, and living there for that first year was... Um, to find some stories and figure out what I was doing. Um, when I got there, I found that the preoccupations and obsessions I had, the way that I was learning about this place and receiving what other people told me and were generous enough to share with me was all through the filter of my own existing obsessions and the cultural context, the American cultural context out of which I'd come. I grew up obsessed with stories of lost girls and endangered children and women. And um, I consume so many of those stories. I watch a lot of, you know, Law and Order SVU because that's a preoccupation that consumes me in my, in my daily life, the experience of vulnerability and of being in power or out of power, how other people treat me or I treat other people based on our identities and shaped by our identities. The way I move as a woman through the world and as a white woman and as a citizen and of America, how those influence the ways in which I am safe or I am at risk. When I was in Russia and I was not a citizen and I was a foreigner and I was still what, what I, in my American context, would call white in that space, and I was very young and I was a woman, there was an experience there of vulnerability and also of safety in these different contexts. Sometimes I was very protected and sometimes I was very at risk. And having those moments over and over again inspired so much of the fiction I wanted to write. And I found that the book I ended up writing was specifically about the experience of womanhood and girlhood and generally about, about violence or about power and how it functions in our daily interactions. The book is 
as you said, um, constructed around these girls' disappearance and then has uh, a different sort of focus character for each chapter that follows the girls' disappearance over a year in their investigation. And my intention at the start was to write a work that explored the, the range of violence in women's lives that we have, to begin with, this very high-profile, attended to, excited over, and statistically very unlikely act of violence of two children's abduction by a stranger. That, that's extremely rare anywhere in the world. And um, when it happens with these sort of perfect victims as they're presented in the story, uh, the media and um, police and authorities and politicians and neighbors and uh, everybody get a sort of fixate on this experience. It's very, very rare and shocking, horrifying experience. But a rare incident like that, an act of violence like that, is propped up and made possible by many small harms and pains and um, cruelties that are perpetuated in our daily lives that we do and have done to us, where we hurt or diminish or ignore or violate those around us and have the same done to us in turn. And because those big acts of, big acts of violence are, are um, you know, only the tip of an iceberg of hurt, because they're, they're propped up by us, they can also be prevented by us. I think they can be pushed back on and defied by our individual actions and the way we treat each other and talk to each other. And so I wanted the book to, to argue for both those things, to explore how a really visible act of violence like the girl's disappearance is on a range, on a spectrum of hurt and how it can also be part of a larger argument for connection or, or doing good for others or listening to others or paying more attention to the harms that others experience in their lives. Because you were so interested in this subject, and it sounds like it has been something that has obsessed you for a long time to watch SVU as a, as a young mm -hmm. child and have that in. I'm wondering if when you, as you explored it in the book or when you finished the book, if you came out with different insights or realizations about some of the questions that you had going in. One of the big arguments of the book is that through connecting to each other, we can be saved and help save each other. We can, we can help each other heal. It's not possible in life to avoid pain or to keep yourself totally safe. If someone decides to hurt you, they're going to hurt you. There's not much you can do about that. But you can, knowing that you run the risk of being hurt all the time, try to help other people and listen to other people and heal from and process that hurt. But that's, that's a crucial thing to do to, to live and to survive, to connect to others. The end of the book is very much written with that idea, with that argument in mind. And as I move farther away from having written it, I've been thinking a lot more of it lately about what that connection to others looks like. And if in the text it 
it benefits one person more than the other if it comes at a cost to other people to make that kind of connection or, or engage in that listening and supporting process. And if it is sort of the, the be-all, end-all that I imagined when I was working on the book. And I think of it specifically along in the book, there are these young ethnic Russian girls, you know, to again, like to my American self, these white girls who go missing. And there's also an indigenous Kanchakan young woman who went missing a few years earlier. And the way that her case is treated in the book and, you know, by the authorities and by neighbors is very, very different from the way that the ethnic Russian girls are treated. And I wonder in the text and outside the text, how much each character in the situation and each family in the situation, each community in the situation is helped by connecting to the other community. There are some very clear helps, but there are also some real costs, I think, that are disproportionately put on the indigenous characters and not on the ethnic Russian characters. And I think about that a lot these days. When the indigenous girl disappears, they can't, her family can't get really any traction with investigators or anything. And it reminded me a lot of what's going on in this country with Native American women disappearing a lot. And I just was wondering if you wanted to talk about that and, and also maybe your lived experiences of being there for a year. This is absolutely something that my experience of being on Kanchaka and uh, what I saw and what I learned and the ways people welcomed me into their homes and spaces and was all filtered through my Americanness. Um, everything was, but this, this dynamic was, especially the dynamic between um, ethnic Russian colonizers and uh, indigenous Kamchatkans or indigenous Siberians and Russians. And in Kamchatka, the city is hugely ethnic Russian and the villages outside the city are substantially indigenous Kamchatkan. It's interesting because it's so visible that like where there are paved roads or where there is cell phone service or where there is uh, money or groceries or is in the city. Um, it's hugely concentrated in there. And the city itself is built around this bay that was the center of colonization, the bay that European ships came into in order to begin colonizing the peninsula. And so you can see, it seems to me so directly, the relationships between race and power and wealth and how they've continued for centuries now. And and keep on going. I think all of my understanding of that or all of the way I um, parse that is through my Americanness and through my experience in the U.S. as as a white person and as a person who lives in a in a city in which resources are concentrated. So I live in New York and and there's um, a lot is pulled to New York, a lot of a lot of money is pulled to New York from other places around the country and around the world. Um, that dynamic is really endlessly interesting to me and hugely relevant and forming of the way that we live our lives. And 
one of those things when you think about money and power is absolutely access to attention or uh, compassion or feeling from authority or from law enforcement that you are worthy of assistance and uh, should not be ignored or harmed. I think as of my experience as a white woman living in the U.S. is uh, in terms of access to law enforcement resources is so radically different from the experiences of, of families of missing and mur murdered indigenous women and girls across the U.S. and North America. And to ask ourselves why that is and try to argue for why that shouldn't be seems crucial in our lives and in our art and in um, our interactions with each other. Just every single thing we do seems, it seems essential to talk about that as much as possible. So I want to ask you about, you know, this community of characters. You have so many characters and such a large community that you actually in the front of the book have sort of a legend to the characters of, of who they are and how they're related and their name and just like a little phrase about them. And so I'm wondering, how did you create this community of characters? Like, did did certain archetypes come to you that then you wanted to fill out? Were they people you saw on the streets? Were they just kind of filling roles that you wanted to fill in, in relation to the missing girls? I think for me, a lot of the characters in the book come out of um, the situations that they are in. That what came first was the the conflict in each of their individual kind of episodes, and then what the character then rose out of that conflict to think who would be the best person, who would be the most dramatic person, who would be the most um, who would be the person that would be most affected by this particular conflict, who who has certain sensitivities or certain pains that that would be. Um, played on by this conflict. There's, for example, a character who goes through a medical crisis in the book, who, you know, sort of has a very upsetting and painful day at a hospital where she has to get a melanoma removed. And she is someone who is very, very, very in control of her life and values that more than anything, values being in charge, values being the boss, values being the person who knows everything and even things that she doesn't know, she tells herself that she knows. And because of that, the situation that she's in is the most destabilizing and horrifying possible. And it would be destabilizing and difficult for anybody, but for her, because of who she is, because of who her personality is, it is the worst possible thing. And I wanted to find in every situation, you know, that like there's someone whose dog runs away who would be most affected by their dog running away, someone who is obsessed with their dog, who um, feels that they have no other community around them but this one animal, and that this animal is the only thing in the world that understands and loves them unconditionally. So then who is that character? To me, that's where the they come from, every single person. I looked at the cover you know, before I interviewed you and I wanted to, yeah. you know, skim through the book and I, I take notes, but I was like, what image am I left with? 
And sometimes you don't really know the reasons, but the first story that struck me when I was thinking back to all your chapters was a chapter between a husband and wife. They, um, she was a new mother. Her name was Zoya, I believe. And Kola was her husband. Yeah, Koya. And she um, was a new mother. He was a police detective. um, So his relation to the crime was trying to find the perpetrator and trying to find the girls. And then she just seemed like very lonely during her days. She was very educated, but she was on maternity leave and she would get dressed up very nicely and just go out to shop. And she would pass these refugees that were working on building new buildings that I think she was supposed to see as dangerous and in some level she did, but she also found like a sexual energy around seeing them. Can you talk a little bit about this chapter? The way I realize that the way I think and talk about this chapter is, is different from the way that a lot of people um, who read the book think and talk about this chapter. So she, Zoya is just as you said, on, on maternity leave. And she um, occupies a lot of her time and energy with, I would say, fetishizing these migrant laborers who work outside her building. And she has all these fantasies about um, how dangerous they are and how sexual they are and how she's going to sort of explode or break open her life by being with these men. But she doesn't know them at all and has no, I think, no desire to see them as people or human beings or anyone who has as active of an imaginary uh, or real life as she does. And so she, um, she has these fantasies that she wants to enact in which she is sort of in, in these fantasies she has great uh, power and potential and they have great power and potential. And it's interesting to me, the dynamic that she has in her life, because in her actual life, her, her husband for these moments is like holding the upper hand. He is the person who goes out and goes to his job and has a social life. And she doesn't feel like she has any of those at the moment. So just as he has sort of dominion over her for the moment. She wants to have dominion over these these workers. Her character is interesting to me because she's one of a couple focused characters in these chapters who you can see pretty overtly trying to hurt other people around them or um, trying to diminish other people around them in order to uh, increase or shore up her own power or position, which is an interesting thing because that's what the kidnapper does in the first chapter. And and it's the, the way that he behaves is not, you know, this aberration that nobody else treats other people that way. Like she also would like to treat other people that way. She just has a limited sphere of influence in which to do it. And a lot of the um, sphere in which she operates is her imagination. And that's not to do, like, she is extremely lonely. She's going through a very difficult time. Her relationship with her husband is fraught, I would say, to say the least. And her relationship with her infant, with her baby, is is also very um, painful and fraught and uh, dissociated. But the way um, 
that her fantasies play into that is is not healthy and and not helping her or those around her. And a lot of the women, you know, one of the notes I had written was not just the role of the women in the different stories, because most of them, but not all of them were in a power structure that they had the lesser power or it seemed like their fate was determined or because of their experience with bad men or men who just have more the upper hand in their relationship or social situation gave these women less agency. But you also had to include some powerful women in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm wondering about this dynamic as a, as a writer. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So because um, all the focus characters in this book are women and girls, a lot of the power structures we see played out are, are structures of gender. And these women live in a patriarchy. Like Russia is a patriarchal society today, just as I would say the United States is a patriarchal society that most of the people in positions of power are men. And those positions of power have been constructed by men in order to concentrate and retain power among them. So a lot of the characters are rubbing up against those structures or those values or um, grappling with how to find agency and empowerment within the society in which they live. There are ethnic Russian characters. There are indigenous characters who are also in a power structure of um, being in this colonized country and this colonized region where power is very disproportionately balanced and given to the colonizer and seized by the colonizer. There is uh, power structures of, of citizenship and belonging. I think that best example of that is that character with the young, the young mother um, who's on maternity leave. She is in a, an extremely powerful place in relation to the migrant laborers that she sees because Migrant laborers in Kamchatka and across Russia are hugely stigmatized and at risk for for violence and targeting. Um, And she's quite comfortable in her position, in her ethnicity, in her race, in her citizenship. She's very secure and protected by all of those. And I wanted, I hope that the book plays out with all characters, not just the focus characters, but the men and women around them, like every supporting character, how we all have these places in which we are powerful or spheres in which we are powerful and spheres in which we are disempowered. And sometimes those are systemic and sometimes those are individual, like moments in which we're cut down or lifted up. And that those are are certainly complicated. Um, And part of the interesting, the most interesting thing of living or reading to me is seeing how how that works for people, you know, how, how different people um, exist within those shifting power dynamics. For example, there's a character who I think is very decisive and empowered. She's, she's has a young daughter and she, in the story, she leaves her boyfriend and moves in with her parents in preparation for leaving Kamchatka. She has a very specific vision of how she wants her career to go and how she wants her life to go. And um, 
a lot how much money she wants to have. Like she grew up with not much money and she and her boyfriend live in a situation where they don't have much money and she wants to have a lot of money and and have a much more comfortable and upper class life than she did before. And I don't think there are um, people around her, men and women around her who, you know, say hurtful things or do, but the biggest obstacle for her, it is money. Um, she doesn't have the means, the financial resources to execute the, um, vision of the life that she wants to have. And that it is really, really, so then she has to work within those limitations and say, okay, with what I do have, how can I best approximate the, the comfort or stability or existence that I, I would like, that I would dream of for myself and for my daughter. And so in that situation, like what is holding her back, I think is not her gender and her ethnicity and her history. All of those things come into play for her, but what is holding her back is primarily financial. And that I, I've talked to folks about that chapter before and they've said like, Oh, her, her boyfriend is so awful. And I'm like, Oh, like her boyfriend is, you know, he's neither awful or, or great. He's just, is what he is. Like, she's also neither awful nor great. She's fine. Um, the obstacle for her and for them is, is a different thing. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I have a passage from Alice Munro's story, Dimension, that I love Alice Munro so much. So she says, They talked mostly about the children and things they cooked, but somehow Dory found out about how Maggie had checked around Europe before tra training as an optometrist, and Maggie found out how young Dory had been when she got married, also about how easily she had become pregnant at first and how she didn't so easily anymore, and how that made Lloyd suspicious so that he went through her dresser drawers looking for birth control pills, thinking she must be taking them on the sly. And are you? Maggie asked. Dory was shocked. She said she wouldn't dare. I mean, I think that was awful to do without telling him. It's just kind of a joke when he goes looking for them. Oh, Maggie said. And one time Maggie said, is everything all right with you? I mean, in your marriage, you're happy? Dory said yes, without hesitation. After that, she was more careful about what she said. She saw that there were things that she was used to that another person might not understand. Lloyd had a certain way of looking at things. That was just how he was. Can you talk about why you chose that? Yeah, I love I love Alice Monroe. I just think she is a master at creating out of very specific and small circumstances this whole sense of life that this is what living is, this is who people are, and this is how we all exist. This kind of um, everyday hurts and triumphs. And some of her work sometimes blends together for me, but this story, this story dimension always stands out. It's so horrifying. It's, it's about a woman whose husband has killed their children. Um, and it really is just like beyond ghastly. It, it's, it's really so scary. But I was rereading again this morning in advance of us talking and thinking about how, what a good job she does at just capturing in this huge and grotesque situation, the tiniest and most Alice Monroe perfect observations, like 
she saw that there were things that she was used to that another person might not understand. I mean, it's just, that's just perfect to me. Um, that I think her Dory is so not alone in feeling that and that decision, um, speaks to so many huge and painful things in her life that have already happened and that will happen. Um, but the sentence just, just sums it up just like that. So neatly, it's just, Alice Monroe just blows me away. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So this is from the book from the character we were talking about before who, um, has a young daughter and, and big career ambitions. Uh, her name's Nadia, and her daughter's name is Mila. She woke with her pulse thudding. Someone was pounding on the front door. The room was silvery, divided into strips of light and dark, and Mila lay on her stomach in the crack between the cushion and the couch rack. The sound of a man's voice outside, Nadia's father's feet coming down the hall. Opening the living room door, Nadia found the shock of her parents and Slava. Her parents in their pajamas, Slava, by the smell of the hallway, drunk. The overhead light was on. Slava's face was red. That color in his skin, the slur in his speech, brought her right back to high school. She shut the door behind her. What are you doing here, she hissed. Go home. Nadia, this, said her father. I'm sorry, Papa, she told him. I've got to ask you something, Slava said. Nadia threw her hands up. It had to be two in the morning. You haven't heard of a text message? That whole scene was so hard to write <laughs> and changed a lot um, over and over again. Was there a the reason why it was so hard? It has a lot of uh, different people in it, and it should be very fast paced. It goes on. They, ha they have this confrontation in this hallway at two in the morning. Um, and they are talking to each other so quickly and saying so much. And in the um, overall arc of that chapter, what is happening in that moment is not is much more about that character Nadia's relationship with her parents and with her daughter than it is about this guy who you know is knocking on the door at two in the morning and, and making all these big pronouncements. Um, and balancing those elements was incredibly difficult even as I read it out loud now I think geez you know I would change this or I would change that to try to balance it better where do you write I write on my couch <laughs> or in my bed what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing these days I'm, I'm doing nothing but getting away from writing and I'm watching a lot of uh YouTube videos of the Bon Appetit test kitchen who do you show your work to first to get feedback I show it to my um, writing group. I'm in a workshop that a couple workshops that I've been in for a long time. And after I draft a piece or a chapter a couple times, I send it to my writing group for them to respond. How have you dealt with rejection? I feel really glad that I've wanted to be a writer for so long because um, ever since I was a kid, I've told myself, like, I've told myself, well, Getting rejected is part of the work. Getting rejected is, if you want to be a professional writer, you're going to have to be rejected, you know, 99 times out of 100, and that's how it goes. Um, so when I get rejected now as an adult, which happens all the time, 
it feels like, well, this is, this is how it ought to go. I know I'm doing my job as a writer. If I'm getting rejected it means I'm putting myself out there and, um, I'm engaging in the work that I dreamed of doing. And what is your favorite word? Mahogany. Thank you so much. I, I so appreciate our conversation. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Julia Phillips, author of Disappearing Earth. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Kara Robertson, who wrote The Trial of Lizzie Borden. We talk about the crime, the trial, and some incredible potential evidence that cannot be unearthed. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Some clips from this interview that patrons will receive as extras include Julia Phillips talking about listening and empathy as part of writing, who she is writing for, and the mystery of why we make art. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tashani Doshi, Jenny Ophel, Kevin Wilson, Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Unright, and Sahar Mustafa. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.